Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's The Middle with Anthony Weiner on WABC. Taking a step back to look at things with a new perspective. It's The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Good afternoon, I'm Anthony Weiner. Thank you for meeting me in the middle an hour every Saturday at 2 o'clock when we take some steps away from the hot takes of the far left and the far right and try to bring some context to the news of the week or maybe a subject or two that doesn't find its way into the middle of the conversation enough. So great to have you here from 2 to 3, like I said, and then at 3 o'clock, Curtis Lee will be joining me for Left versus Right. You can hear us anywhere on the Globe and the WBCRadio.com app. You can join in on the show in many ways. One is by tweeting at me at Rep Wiener, R-E-P-W-E-I-N-E-R, Wiener, W-A-B-C at gmail.com. And, of course, the best part, calls in, call calls, 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. We've got uh, Kevin helping us out. Ryan is on the calls as well. Christian, I think, is coming in a little later. It's so great to have you here. It's a great kind of Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, time. A lot of people are getting together with loved ones. A lot of people are doing routines slightly different than they would normally do. This is kind of a national weekend of saying thanks, of gratitude. You've heard me talk about that spirit before. You've heard me talk about the concept that it isn't being happy that makes you grateful. It's being grateful that makes you happy. Always being in mind the small things, the big things, all of the ways that we can be happy just having comfortable shoes, having food in our stomachs, having a nice day. I was able to find a bike on the way here. Um, I hope that spirit of gratitude is still with you and your family as we're here in the middle of Thanksgiving weekend. Um, I got to tell you, I haven't had the chance. I, I'm only on once a week. I haven't had a chance to express the gratitude for all the folks who have helped me make this show every week. This is now our 36th show, believe it or not. We've been here every week um, for that long, and the amazing professionals here that I'm really grateful for. You know, I grew up listening to 77 WC Radio. In fact, just this weekend, and we with a friend who was visiting from out of town. And for whatever reason, we started looking at the hits, the, uh, the Billboard 100 from 1972. It's the first time I kind of remember kind of really getting into music. And they were all the first songs that I was hearing, the first kind of experience I was having with popular music was on 77 WBC. It was on you know, on all the time. And so I have to start with, you know, kind of the the vision for bringing the lights back, not only the lights back on here at WABC Radio, but to make it kind of a, a place of glory again. So John and Margot Katsimatidis, the top of my gratitude list, you hear their names often from the hosts here and from guests that come on here. It's because it really is this, we are very lucky that, that almost, we almost lost this amazing station. And because of them, 
and their love not only for the idea of radio, not only for the station, but for the listeners. Um, and I'm really grateful for them that they've given me this opportunity. <clears throat> Another name you've heard, of, you know, Chad Lopez, he's kind of the straw that stirs the drink around here, arguably the most successful executive in New York radio, maybe in the radio market in, 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 uh, in America. He's always pushing for better, always open for ideas and reminding us to honor the idea that the listeners have a million other optioners and where they can be at any point and that we have to give them the best kind of radio that we can. And, and also the team that helps me every week. You know, I walked in here 36 some odd weeks ago, I, I, you know, as someone who talked for a living as a politician, but doing radio is a very complicated, a lot of moving parts, a lot of expertise is necessary, and we have that here. Uh, Kevin, who's helping me on the other side of the glass today, has helped me every step of the way with the feel and the sound and the professionalism of the show. People like Ryan and Diego and Rich and Eva and these other folks who have greeted callers, played the right sounds at the right times, you know, added some timber to my voice when I needed it and covered up when I was raspy, just generally made this this program just works so much better. And, and of course, I'm really grateful to all of you, my dear listeners. Um, we've doubled the number of people listening and streaming and downloading and getting in all these different ways. And as you know, I've tried to do a different type of show. Um, the metaphor might be um, like I'm trying to do an hour of jazz on a rock and roll station, um, maybe not doing the hard right takes that you might otherwise get. Maybe I'm not doing the shouting back and from the left that maybe you might have thought you'd be getting, um, trying to find that middle ground, trying to find that voice of maybe people who don't want just the same thing all the time. They want to have a little bit of a conversation. And um, not only have you all listened and not only have you responded in many different ways, but also by calling and joining in, you've really made the show so much better each and every week. Um, You've kept me honest. You've kept me smiling. You've kept me thinking. And and every time I've said, hey, let's try looking at this another way, you, the listeners, have said, okay, let's try that. You haven't always agreed with me, and sometimes you've given me a lot of pushback, and sometimes you've told me I was full of baloney. But I really do want to thank you for um, continuing to make this show grow and be better and to welcome me into your homes, whether it be on Tuesday Live. Tuesday. <laughs> Maybe that's when I do my podcast, whether it's on Saturday Live or uh, on podcast form. Um, I really do appreciate it. So let's, uh, with that spirit of gratitude in mind, let's uh, uh, talk about the numbers of the week. As you know, each week I like to take a look at some of the numbers that caught my attention during the week and have a little discussion about them. And this week the number is uh, 238. 238 years ago yesterday was evacuation day. Um, It is an interesting coincidence that we were playing England in the World Cup. I'll get to that in a moment. But... um, for the seven years after, you know, the beginning of, of, of the war, beginning of the Revolutionary War, um, we, we, meaning George Washington's army, got routed in the Battle of Long Island in 1776. And for the entire duration of the Revolutionary War, what is basically, New, what is basically Greater New York, which is only south of Canal Street, you know, people think that I'm sorry, south of Chamber Street, never mind Canal, Chamber Street, basically running from about City Hall south was really all that New York City was. In fact, if you take a look, if you ever get close enough to City Hall, if you look at the back of the building, walk around to the back of the building and rub your hands against the back, you see the back is not really finished. 
because it was just woods. No one ever imagined that New York City would be that much further north of there. But after Washington retreated in the Battle of Long Island, retreated to New Jersey, retreated to Brooklyn, retreated north, um, the British occupied New York for the remainder of the war. And people live, people were, were, many of them were thrown out of their houses. Maybe they were thrown into, um, into, you know, shanty houses or some of them were put on boats off the, off the coast. Um, they lost their homes and the British occupied it um, until the Revolutionary War ends in 1783. And November 25th, yesterday, um, we commemorate Evacuation Day, which is when, um, when the British packed up their bags and left. Now, it's interesting. Among the people that they took with them were 29,000 refugees. Well, what were refugees at the time? Refugees at the time were loyalists to the Brits who didn't feel safe anywhere else. And so they were in lower Manhattan, very often living in the houses and living in the homes and living in the streets there in lower Manhattan. I keep saying lower Manhattan, but that's all New York City. They lived in basically greater New York at the time. And um, so finally, November 25th, 1783, and shortly thereafter, George Washington replanted the flag in New York. And that is Evacuation Day, 238 years ago yesterday. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit later in the show. I found myself uh, yesterday during Evacuation Day in the Red Lion Pub, and apparently in England you can find four Red Lion pubs on every block. They're all the Red Lion pubs. It refers to some element of the British seal. Don't ask me. Curtis may know that. Um, and I was there watching this this vaunted soccer match between uh, the USA and Britain, but I was doing that on evacuation day in Greenwich Village, basically lower Manhattan. I feel like I was very patriotic for doing that. And I'll talk a little bit more about that experience um, in a moment. And uh, the other number of the day, 1.6 million. That's how many people in New York City metropolitan area, by the sound of my voice, report not having enough food to eat in October. That is a lot of people, that is. And one out of five of them were children. Um, And so we're going to have a guest on to talk a little bit more about this. But, you know, hunger and the, the challenges of dealing with childhood hunger are one of those issues that, frankly, when I started thinking about doing The Middle as a show, and and it's a podcast, and I and also Keysless City, we focus on this. I always think about issues that, you know, there really isn't a great space between the left and the right on how to solve some of these problems and the desire to solve the problems. Um, if you think about it, there's not an, in, in, an ideological divide on whether we should make sure that people have enough food to eat, particularly children. Um, there's no, when you're dealing with kids, kids don't have politics. You know, they haven't made any decisions. They're not socialists. They're not Democrats or Republicans. They're just, they're just kids. And so it's not like the people that are being helped. Well, some people want to help them and some people don't think they really deserve it. We all believe that kids should be fed, that we should find food for kids. And we know that we live in a country that has such enormous wealth and such amazing prosperity, even in our worst of times, that we should not be a place where kids go hungry. And we also know that there are some 
programs that we've come up with that over the years really have had a lot of bipartisan support because they take a little bit of ideas from both sides of the aisle. Um, the SNAP programs, uh, uh, the nutrition – what does the S stand for? Nutrition program. SNAP is basically the renamed version of food stamps. I renamed about 10 years ago. It's basically a voucher program like Republicans and conservatives like. We give food vouchers to the families, and they've got to be pretty poor to get them, very poor, in fact. I think basically families of a family of four can make no more than $39,000, a family of four, in order to be eligible for them. And then we say you go out and you buy food locally. So it's basically it goes directly from the holder of the, of the SNAP, goes to a local store, goes to the goes to the Agro goes to the farmer, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't go through a big government bureaucracy. Governments don't don't get really involved in it. So we kind of know the programs that work. And then we also know that when you look at real tests of what happens if you increase the amount of SNAP or decrease the amount of SNAP, what happens? During COVID, believe it or not, childhood hunger went down. We actually fed more people during the worst moments when – and all, most of the programs we have to keep children fed are in their schools. And so what happens was we didn't have school lunches. We didn't have school breakfasts. We didn't have any of those school pantry programs And because all the kids were home for COVID. And so what did we do? We increased – Democrats and Republicans alike increased the SNAP reimbursements. This gave more SNAP money to families so they can buy the food. And what happened when they did surveys, uh, hunger surveys and, and food insecurity surveys, it turned out that hunger actually went down. We know what works. We know how to reduce the amount of hunger. But now those programs have lapsed. Now we have inflation, as you know, running wild. And that infects a lot of people. But unlike a lot of well-to-do Americans who like a lot of the money that they built up during those COVID period, they still have those you know, the inflation hasn't hit that hard for families living hand to mouth, no pun intended. Um, those families are much worse off because the cost of food is so much higher and they cannot escape it. It's not like they're making a choice like driving a car. I can choose not to maybe go on that trip. And so hunger is back on the rise. And we're going to have a guest on today who's devoted his life to dealing with the challenges of hunger and dealing with the ch- challenges of childhood hunger in particular. And I'll talk to him about this, but if you think this is a problem of freeloaders or people who don't want to work or people who are taking advantage, um, the statistics around how many people are working full-time jobs who are hungry, working full-time jobs who can't afford to, to um, put food on the table, is, um, is staggering. Um, and again, I want to remind you that kids don't have – Agendas. They don't have politics. They're just kids. And maybe they'll grow up to be Democrats, Republicans. But for now, I think it's all of our obligation to try to figure out how to help them. And so uh, this week um, on the middle and when we come back from the break, we're going to hear from the CEO of Hunger Free America, who's going to talk a little bit about not only the substance of some of the problems, but he and I are also going to talk apropos of the middle. We're going to talk about some of the politics around getting help for people who are hungry. And perhaps we can find some solutions that everyone can agree with. So happy to have you here. So grateful to have you here on The Middle. I'll see you on the other side.
Talk Radio 77 WABC. It's The Middle with Anthony Weiner on WABC. Taking a step back to look at things with a new perspective. It's The Middle with Anthony Weiner. It's the time of the season. And welcome back to the middle. It is so great to have you along. Kitty and Reese in from Great Britain recommended our musical acts. Actually, it's really, that's the zombies. And uh, a little later in the show, I'm going to talk about what it's like to be a tour guide for British tourists when there's USA, England soccer in town. And also when Curtis comes in at the top of the hour from 3 to 4, we're going to talk about Eric Adams traveling off to Doha himself and what that means. Imagine that I imagine that Curtis has some thoughts about soccer in general. Now, we're going to try not to do the cliche, ugly American talking about soccer, but it is called soccer, right? Can we just agree on that, that at least we have the name of it right? But back to the subject we're talking about. We're talking about the subject of hunger in the United States. It is something that seems to be a relatively stubborn problem on one hand. On the other hand, we do have now plenty of body of knowledge and expertise on how to bring down hunger. And one of the people that has been, frankly, has devoted his his entire life to it. He's he's both inside of government, in the nonprofit world, someone that understands it very well. We're going to be joined by Joel Berg. Joel who is the author of uh, several books, including All You Can Eat, How Hungry is America, and also America, We Need to Talk, a self-help book for the nation. He is the CEO of Hunger Free America. Joel Berg, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me on. You don't want to talk about the zombies? Can you name their only other hit? Well, you're going to get a chance to hear it. You're, you're talking to the wrong guy about two-hit wonders. We had a conversation about that for a while. <laughs> okay. But you're, you're, going to have to, you're going to have to stay tuned to hear the, the two other, what we, can, we consider... Hits of the zombies, but you you know exactly what your audience is because we are we're going to be hearing that soon. Um, but okay, Judge, got, yeah. spoiler one also became a, a cover hit uh, for Carlos Santana. That's exactly right. You are good, Joel. You're good. Hey, listen. Before we have a conversation about the solutions, I mean, give me a sense of the arc. You you know, in the back in the in the days, you worked at the Department of Agriculture. You've been in this space for a long time, not only here in New York but uh, around the country. Is is are, are are we making a dent in the problem of hunger on a bigger on a bigger arc? And also recently, have we seen some improvements in these things? Yes and no. The bottom line is public policy matters, and when the public policies are working, hunger goes down. When those policies are reversed, hunger goes up. So, to be very specific, we had uh, the largest economic collapse in modern times, arguably since the Depression, in the pandemic. And because the leadership in in Congress and the Biden administration dramatically increased both food and cash aid, including for school meals uh, expansion, hunger went down, even though we had this huge economic collapse in the last year. Much of that increased aid has been ended and hunger has gone up again. So people really shouldn't be shocked that when you bring in water, drought goes away. When you take away water, uh, drought comes back. And same is when you give food or cash aid to people, they're able to have enough food. And when you don't, they don't. And what are the two, two or three biggest 
public policy successes in dealing with hunger? I mean, I'm putting putting aside the dollar amounts that go into them. What what are the policy things that we've done that help people feed their families? Well, first, I'd say raising the minimum wage. We've done a study comparing states with higher minimum wages to states with lower minimum wages. And no shock, the states with the higher minimum wages have less hunger among working people. And I know you have a fair amount of conservative listeners, and I point out raising the minimum wage doesn't cost the government a penny. It rewards work. We all want to reward work, so raising the minimum wage works. Uh, The Social Security Act, going back to the 1930s, we know that before the 1930s, the poorest people in America were senior citizens. And today, while there's a lot of poverty among senior citizens, there's less poverty and hunger among senior citizens than among children because of Social Security. And then thirdly, you know, the more you know, typical food safety net, the school meals program, which were started in the 1940s as a defense uh, program because our boys at the time, young men, were too malnourished to fight. And the uh, SNAP program, the current name for the old food stamp program, which is sort of a voucher program, which gives uh, benefits to people to be able to use at for-profit food stores. So all these things have worked and dramatically reduced hunger. But I'll point out that uh, you know most other industrialized Western nations on the planet don't have anything like the hunger we have, and they don't have the food programs. They just have higher wages, more affordable housing, free health care, and so they don't need all the special food programs. And when we provide benefits in the form of SNAP or food, food stamps, it's a fairly streamlined process, right? We basically give them credit to buy food anywhere in their neighborhood, and they just go and spend it in a local store. So it's not like this is a, it's not a centrally government-run kind of program the way some people might envision, envision it. It's, a, it's kind of a straight economic stimulus program, isn't it? Exactly. There are some uh, programs, countries with more government intervention than here, like Mexico or India. And when there's a government food program, you go to a government food warehouse to get government food. In America, the SNAP program really is a voucher program. You can use it you know, in some places online now to uh, shop for food. You can use it at farmer's markets. You can use it at bodegas and corner stores you know, and, and Whole Foods. So you can really use it for a wide variety of things at a wide variety of, of, of places. But I, I recall hearing stories from constituents, and sometimes I still hear get calls like this from time to time, saying that food stamps – you know, why are people lining up for food stamps when they look like they're well-dressed, they have fur coats, probably an exaggeration, and they're using it to buy beer? I mean, talk about some of the myth, the myths about the SNAP program that are frequently thrown up when people talk about trying to expand it. In fact, I think we discussed this the very first time we met, and you were telling me about some constituents who raised those concerns uh, to you. Well, well first of all, uh, you know, you never know someone's situation by what clothing they have. Their, their one article of clothing may be the last thing they took from the old country, so to speak. But the fact remains, the vast majority of, of hungry people, of people in poverty in America are working. They're working hard and playing by the rules, and they just don't earn enough to feed their families. Uh, Then many people who are hungry are children, senior citizens, uh, people with disabilities, and and, uh, veterans. 
the, the, the percentage of people who are these sort of stereotypical lazy bums who are able-bodied people who never serve the country, who just don't want to work, that's really more a myth than a reality. That is a very microscopically small percentage of those getting government aid. And I point out lots of uh, wealthy people get government aid, and we don't want to micromanage how they live uh, their lives. Look, I, I believe that rewarding work should be the centerpiece of social policy. My old boss, Bill Clinton, you know, um, believed that. And that's why I believe things like the earned income tax credit, which gives people extra tax benefits for working to make sure as much as possible that you do better working than by getting government assistance. I think those are the, the programs that, that you know, move us furthest. And when you when you look, you have a footprint in, uh, by the way, talking to Joel Berg, who's the CEO of Hunger Free America, uh, one of the premier hunger organizations uh, um, out there, anti-hunger organizations out there. When you when you look around the country, I'm always surprised when I look at your studies that it's not this is not just an urban area Bronx problem. And there's we do have a problem in the Bronx, but very often the counties in upstate New York counties in rural areas have high levels of hunger. Hunger is not something that is purely a New York, a, a, a blue or a red problem. It seems to be all over the country. Absolutely. In the last week, I did events in, in Rochester, New York, Albany, uh, New York, and, and the Bronx. I grew up in Rockland County, about uh, 30 miles north of, of Times Square, and uh, most of the suburbs, like Rockland County, had very significant increases in poverty and hunger over the last few decades, mostly because uh, housing is just so expensive there and, and elsewhere. So hunger is a problem in every rural, urban, and even most suburban of the United States. A lot of people don't know that hunger is a serious problem in the Haredi Jewish community, ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, where some of the you know, adult males particularly have limited incomes and uh, at least, on average, fairly large uh, households. So who is hungry, who gets help, who needs help is, is uh, you know, really goes way beyond the stereotypes. I also point out that the number of people in America who are sometimes poor and hungry is about 10 times the number of people who are always poor and hungry. Let me repeat that. The number of people who sometimes suffer from poverty are about 10 times the number of people who always suffer from poverty. That's because most people in poverty, at least for some points in their life, climb into the middle class. They get a better job. They're doing well health-wise. And then something happens. Uh, they lose their job. A factory shuts down. There are layoffs. Uh, the carburetor goes out in their suburban car and they can't get to work anymore. They or someone in their family gets sick. So there's a lot of fluidity between the lower middle class and people in poverty and vice versa than most people think. A lot of social policy, a lot of media focuses on the so-called underclass. That does exist, people who are perpetually poor, but that's not the biggest problem in America. It's really about lack of economic opportunity. And you know this very well. The decline of the middle class is often seen as an entirely different issue than the poverty issue in America and the hunger issue in America, but they're really the same issue. Yeah. So we just have one one minute left. The new Congress is, is being seated in January. The House, the, the Senate will stay in Democrat in Republican hand in Democratic hands. In the House, if you had to give some advice to Speaker, or most likely Speaker McCarthy, about like some 
middle of the ground, middle ground, non-ideological things that we can do to deal with this problem. What are a couple you'd say that you would hope he gets started with right away? Well, first, I got to get in the plug. If any of you can afford to donate to Hunger Free America, go to hungerfreeamerica.org. You can also volunteer there. You can also find out where you can get food if you need it. But the advice I'd give to the Republicans in Congress is remember the old-fashioned bipartisan tradition of this, of Richard Nixon and Bob Dole, and do something basic, like make it easier for kids in rural areas and suburban areas to get free universal school meals. That's something that can very much be done in the lame duck session, will help Many of the districts you represent will reduce paperwork and bureaucracy. So that should be something that Republicans are for. That's great. Joel Berg, who is the CEO of Hunger Free America, uh, an organization that he mentioned you can reach out to online to make uh, donations and also find an enormous amount of resources about where to get help if you know people who are dealing with hunger. He's also the author of a couple of great books, the latest of which was America, We Need to Talk, a self-help book for the nation. Joel Berg, thank you so much. Have a great Thanksgiving holiday, and I appreciate all your service. Thank you, Anthony. Have a good one. And when we come back on The Middle, we'll hear a a little bit more about this subject. And also, I'll tell you what it's like to be sitting in a British bar in Greenwich Greenwich Village, rooting for a game I know very little about, and finding out that no one ever scores in. We're on The Middle. I'll see you on the other side. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner, 77 WABC. Well, no one told me about her, the way she lied. Well, no one told me about her, how many people cried. And welcome back to The Middle. This is The Zombies. How good was Joel Berg, man? He... He really nailed it on the substance and on the music. Known him for some time. He's a good egg. So great to have a good conversation about a, an important subject. We are here in the middle every Saturday from 2 to 3. By the way, if you can't follow us every Saturday live, you can always get it in the form of a podcast anywhere you get a podcast. And also, I now do a podcast called The Middle Unplugged, episode 5 this week. It comes out every Saturday. I'm getting my days all confused today. Every Wednesday it comes out in the middle of the week. This week I do an episode where I talk about Nancy Pelosi and Hunter Biden, two of my favorite subjects, and encourage you to subscribe there, either anywhere you get them or on the Red Apple Podcast Network, or you could always stream them right from WABCradio.com. 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. We're talking about Thanksgiving weekend. We're talking about gratitude, and we're also thinking talking about as I mentioned earlier, that this uh, yesterday was evacuation day, the day that the British gave up uh, on greater New York, left, and we were able to, to claim New York again for ourselves. And in honor of that, I, I had over the last few days visitors um, from Great Britain that I was taking around. And, and I have to tell you, it was a pleasure in so many ways. In, in one, you know, I, I had warned them. I said, listen, Thanksgiving week, it's not going to be a typical week in New York. Things are going to be closed. It's going to be very quiet, a little bit sleepier than normally. I get it. The tourists are out in force. I mean, New York City, as much as we dwell on how far we are from coming back completely, the amount of tourism that I got a chance to see both on on Broadway and in Central Park, uh, um, all around, um, just about everywhere we went, Except for one place, and I don't know, this, this might, again, might be psychology. It didn't seem like there was many tourists on the subways. And I wonder if they're getting the, 
the message is starting to spill over that it's not safe for them to be down there. But, boy, the tourism was really high. I ran into John Tish, who, who owns the the Regency Hotel. He says that they're doing great. And um, it really is good to see that, that at least that leg of the economic stool that is New York City is holding up pretty well. A lot of tourism going on. Took them. As I, I was on with John Katsimatidis on Thanksgiving Day, I mentioned I was going to go to the parade for the first time. I'd never been to the parade. I mean, New Yorkers don't go to that parade, do they? Um, and that, that, you know, obviously thick with tourists there. Um, and then yesterday I found myself, because, look, there are visitors from Great Britain. They wanted to see the match. And lo and behold, it's the USA versus Britain. And we we went to the, the Red Lion, which is in Greenwich Village. And... Um, I asked them, well, you know, they chose it. I said, you choose the Red Lion. He says, well, the Red Lion's the surest name of any of any pub you're going to find in England. And sure enough, jam-packed with, uh, I'm going to say, two-thirds, two-thirds American fans, one-third British fans, I'm going to say. And I got to sit and watch an entire soccer match. You know I'm a big sports fan. Um, you know I'm a hockey fan. So for those of you who are un, uninitiated, soccer is like hockey. Without the skates, obviously, it's really it's much slower and more and there and no one ever gets a chance, not no one, but rarely do you get a chance to score. I think at the end of the match, it was something like fifteen. One one team had fifteen attempts on goal and two actual shots on goal, and the other one was like thirteen attempts on goal and maybe one uh, actual shot. But basically, I could have been the goalie for. USA team. The guy made like two saves. All right, if I didn't make those two saves, then we would have given up two goals. I'd still be a pretty average soccer goalie. Um, I tell you the British, I'm, I'm enormous fans of, of, of the British people. They're great. We have that special relationship. I've told you before I love their politics. Um, this is it. They're the, they're, they're, they founded the modern game, and that was it. That was what they showed us yesterday. I mean, I don't know. Look, I don't know much about soccer, and, and Lord knows those announcers don't tell me much about soccer. I have no idea what they're talking about either. Um, but we had a chance to be sitting in this pub and uh, watch that, that match. And um, I want to – listen, I want to get into it. I want to feel like I understand it. I want to feel like I get the idea – it just seems like a lot of it is just just a lot of not particularly interesting things happen. It's like an enormous amount of time, just the ball rolling off the off the pitch, and then guys randomly walking it in wherever they want. I don't know how they decide where they get to stand or who. And a lot of fouls being called that nothing happens. They call a foul and that no one goes to a penalty box or anything. They just turn over possession of the ball, and that's it. I mean, why did you why did you stop the game for that? You might as well have let them play. So over the course of 75 – oh, and by the way, you know how long the match is? No, I don't know either because they don't count up clock rather than a countdown clock. What is the only thing you need a clock for? The only thing is to find out how much time is left, right? That's the only fact anyone ever looks at a clock for. No one wants to get a historical context for what happened in the 19th minute. They want to find out how much time is left because it's 0-0 and they want to know if anyone has time to score or if it's one nothing, or they're going to have time to catch up. And yet you've got you've to – Go do math or math says some bizarre reason the British say. And so they count up to, to 90 minutes. Well, no, they count up to 45 minutes in the first half. Well, no, they don't do that either because then at the 45-minute mark when you're waiting for a buzzer and the thing to end, they put on additional time because of the breaks in the action that took place over the previous half. 
I get, I get that. Now, you know, there's another way they could do this, that when they have a break in the action, just stop the clock. They could just do that too, you know, and then start it up again. So everyone knows exactly what's going on. But instead, at the end of the 45-minute half, they arbitrarily announce an amount of minutes that get added beyond that. So you're still counting up. And then once those minutes are over, so just so 45 minutes, again, I'm repeating this, assuming that no one, that, that you, the dear listener, hasn't watched it, but I'm sure if you're a soccer fan or you watch it. So then you get to the end of the extra time, then there's a buzzer, right? And everything's done. No. If they're in the middle of doing something, when the time runs out, they kind of let them keep doing it. It's just so... It's just so weird and arbitrary, and it takes it sucks that kind of like dramatic excitement out of like okay, there's 15 seconds left. Like that football game, the 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 you know the Buffalo game against the Lions, they they you know the last two minutes, you know were exciting. You know things going back and forth, but it all depended on people staring at the clock and understanding what the clock meant. That's not really what they do in soccer. And when I suggested to my friend Reese, I said, listen, why don't they just do what they do in hockey, which is play three-on-three sudden death at the end of regulation? He's like, no, that would be that." He scoffed at me. did a lot of scoffing at me this week. He scoffed at me. He said, no, that's, that's not where that, which it's just a draw. I said, that's okay to be a draw. I said, yes, I guess it's okay to be a draw in the abstract, but when you're trying to determine who the best team is, don't you want to have some kind of an outcome? So soccer, I'm, again, I'm, I'm trying to keep an open mind. I hope the USA beats Iran. Um, because that's what they have to do to advance. But I'm a little bit disappointed. I, I don't know. I was a little bit let down because I mean, we were looking forward to this. US, you know, USA, England, when my English friends were visiting and then no goals were scored. So we had that. But overall, the time that we spent traveling around the city and me doing the touristy things with them and showing them different places, went to MoMA, packed. Went to Central Park, packed. Um... Like I said, you know, uh, we went to to a to a play on Broadway, packed. Uh, it was just so. It's it's great to know that people are still coming here, and maybe it's like it's even more accentuated by the idea that so many New Yorkers were not on the street because of the holiday, and it was such a sleepy time. So it just seemed like everywhere I went, I couldn't shake a dead cat without hitting someone with a, with a foreign accent. I'm so glad that they're they're here. It's great for New York, and a sign that at least that part. It started to come back that the airports are full with people who want to come here and they want to spend their money and we want them to feel to feel welcome. So uh, with that, let's take uh, let's take a few calls here. Uh, we were talking about childhood hunger earlier in the day. Uh, people have been talking about the things that they are uh, feeling grateful for and encourage you to share to share yours as well. And then at three o'clock, Curtis Lee will come in and we'll have our little Thanksgiving ish show and talk a little bit about politics. Also, Curtis Lee putting his finger heavily on the scale uh, and against uh, Eric Adams. We'll talk about a complaint that he filed um, require, asking for an investigation <coughs> of some of Eric Adams' appointments. He'll be in and we'll have a chance to talk about that. But let's get to a couple of calls before before we get, get to the break. Um, first up, uh, let's go to John in Brooklyn. Go ahead, John. Yeah, Anthony. Yeah, last week uh, someone called in about a documentary called Two Thousand Mules," and you kind of poo-pooed it, but it was pretty good. Yeah, I poo-pooed it because it doesn't show what it purports to show, and they now admit it. <clears throat> and it's a and, and and it's another one of these things that people 
that people trying to profit on basically the fears and ignorance of others. Um, I, I don't need to go into it on the radio. You can go, a guy named Philip Bump for the Washington Post did a line-by-line analysis and also interviewed the sources and also interviewed the makers of the movie who admitted that big elements of it were faked, including maps that they had that showed where there was so-called harvesting of ballots. It just didn't happen the way the movie said it. Susan did not say that. Yeah, the, the, the guys that he relied upon. He, he, was, he was the documentarian. The people he relied upon said it. And, and where did you see this? You can go read it in the Washington Post. The guy's name is Philip Bump. Yeah, in the Washington Post, Philip Bump, he did the whole takedown. Sorry, I'm getting very emotional about this subject. Actually, let's go ahead to a break, and I'll catch my voice. Why should I care? Please don't bother trying to find her. She's not there. Well, let me tell you about the way she looked, the way she had to. Radio 77 WABC. It's the middle with Anthony Weiner. 77 WABC. And if she should tell you I'm closer. And if she tells you with a charm. And welcome back to the middle. This is Anthony Weiner. That's the zombies bringing us back in. Man, oh man. First of all, I want to apologize to John, our last caller. I started coughing. I had a little bit of a cough. I spilled whatever water I had all over my notes. I realized I threw them away. I keep them. They need to go in the Anthony Weiner Radio Museum. And then, uh, thank you, Kevin came in and brought some more water, brought me some paper towels. I'm like, what a mess. What a mess. But I apologize. Just to finish up on the last thought about the 2,000 mules thing, and I'm still struggling a little bit here. Um, The whole thesis was people were paid to stuff ballot boxes, and they don't have – they didn't see anyone do it. They didn't have any documentation of that, and they relied upon cell data – not personalized cell data, like following people, to show how many people were near these boxes at any one time, et cetera, et cetera. And the people that that gave the makers this data and explained what it is, they put it on top of maps, right? And the maps purported to show lots of people gathering around these locations. The only problem is the maps were fake. So they they had dots, they had maps, but the maps were fake. And the the the, the, the makers of the maps and the makers of the of the um, tech of the, the uses this technology, this big thing that was supposed to be the difference. And then the and then the other problem was they showed something that wasn't illegal. Like it's not illegal for someone to even if they were even if it were true that someone took to had two ballots and put them in a ballot box, they still are there. The ballots all or certain people have. And ballots, some people don't. <clears throat> and then like, like, there was one particularly funny thing where they have um, this guy goes, they have video of one guy outside a library voting. voting is it? And then he takes a picture 
uh, of himself with the ballot box. They said, this is how the mules operate. They've got to show proof that they did it so that they can get paid for their – to be a mule. So the – someone went back and looked and they found that a lot of people were taking pictures of themselves voting <laughs> during the election and they found this actual guy <laughs> who had taken this picture. And he wasn't a mule or anything. He was just like thought it was cool that he had voted, and so he took a picture of himself. Anyway, so but I apologize for for interrupting that call by having a coughing fit. Let's go to a few more calls before the top of the hour when Curtis Lee comes in for left versus right. Um, let's go to uh, Jimmy on Long Island. Go ahead, Jimmy. Thanks for calling in. Hi, Anthony. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. First, let me say this: I don't want to see anybody of any age go hungry for any reason. Um, but with respect to your your caller before. Um, one of the reasons people can't afford food is because when you escalate minimum wage beyond what's reasonable for business, those businesses have to raise their cost of doing business, which raises the cost of their products for the people, including food, which makes it more difficult for people with limited means to buy food. Um, well, it's not clear. The data, is, the data hasn't borne that out. The data hasn't borne out that increasing the minimum wage increases – inflation or uh, consumer price costs or costs of products, period. It just doesn't bear it out. In fact, today, I will tell you that today the going rate for workers is far above what the, the minimum wage is. And a lot of people, you know, the minimum wage in a lot of places is, is a fairly meaningless number because if you try to hire someone for a so-called minimum wage job here in New York City where we have a shortage of labor – it doesn't work out that way. But the, the, the fact is no one should work a full-time job and not be able, not be able to afford to pay their, their family's bills and not be able to feed their family. And if you have a minimum wage job, you can't afford to live on it. And that's the problem. If, 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 if the function of business is to be altruistic, then why not pay everyone a minimum wage of $100 an hour? It's not the function of business to be altruistic. It's the function of business to drive down their costs as much as they absolutely can. It's the function of government to make sure that business operates in a way that's in the best interest of society. We, 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 we can't go all in either – it's not an either-or situation, and that's why the minimum wage is something – I don't believe it should be infinite, but I do believe it should be raised commensurate with the costs that we have. And one thing we, I do believe – is that there is dignity to work. If someone's going to work a 40-hour week, a full-time job, they should be able to support their family. Do you believe that? Well, well, I, we're, we're conflating a lot of issues here. If someone's going to work, for example, if you have a minimum wage job, the reason you have a minimum wage job is because it's typically your first job, and you're learning on that job. Okay, so you get paid a minimum to do that job so you can learn, so that employer can train you, so you can elevate your level of skill, and then you get paid more money. No, there are people there. There are people that's never the intention of a person on a minimum wage job to have a family and support a family. Well, but 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 whether you whether that's whether that's your lifetime occupation is flipping burgers, the likelihood of having you using that job to pay for a house and four kids and putting them through college is ridiculous. I'm not I'm not even suggesting that high an aspiration. I'm I'm suggesting should they be able to feed their family of four? Well, what makes you think people, most people with minimum wage job have families? Most of them are kids that live in a family and make part-time money to pay a little, you know, they set up a little savings, learn about work, 
and learn about work, uh, life in the workforce. Well, it's not intended to be a job to support yourself and a family. Well, it's let supposed me, to be an introductory job into the workforce. Whether it's supposed to be that or not, can you, I notice you're reluctant to answer the question. If you're working a full-time job at the minimum wage, should you be able to pay for food for your family? Well, again, it's, 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 it's a misleading question. Most people that have minimum wage jobs are not in a position to support, shouldn't be in a position to I support think, a family. And, 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 I, and I appreciate, Jimmy, and it's, it's, it's a thoughtful call, but I, I, I get why. I get why you're reluctant and why, why Jimmy's reluctant to say, no, they shouldn't be able to feed their family, because of course the answer is yes. You know, you can say, okay, well, they, they shouldn't have that kind of job. Well, some people do. I mean, some people do. And I believe that there should be such – I should be that if you work a full-time job, you should be paid sufficient wages that you can afford to feed your family. I mean that, I don't think that's an out-there idea. And you can say, well, they should get different jobs. Maybe that's true. But, it, it, you know, I mean one of the things that we can do is raise the minimum wage. It doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't cost you anything. <laughs> it doesn't cost the government anything. It doesn't cost the taxpayer anything. It just makes sure that we're, we're, we're creating a bottom, a minimum. We're answering that question, which is if you are working hard and you're doing a job and you're not trying to freeload, shouldn't you make enough to feed your family? I mean, I don't think that's an un- unreasonable thing to, to ask. Um, next, let's go to Bill and Ramsey. Go ahead, Bill. Hey, Anthony, how are you? First of all, big fan of you. I uh, just want to say all that water in your nose, that was probably the red wave. <laughs> could be, could be. How are you doing? All right, all right. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, listen, you're you're so wrong on so many things. I don't know where to begin. But uh, one thing we can talk about is hunger in America. You know, your your friend Joel talked about some statistics in New York about one and a half million people, and then a quarter of them are children, and everything else. And so, where are these statistics coming from? Where are they coming from, right? Is this self-reported? Is it not self-reported? My point here is, my point here ultimately is, and this is this is where we will diverge a lot, is that there you can't find anybody conservative or Republican who says people shouldn't be fed. You can't find anybody liberal, Democratic, who says children shouldn't be fed, right? right? And by the way, you really can't walk around the five boroughs of New York City and find children that haven't been fed, right? So, so what are we talking about? One and a half million people going hungry every day in New York. Where is that coming from? Go ahead and answer that. I have more. Sure. Uh, well, a lot of it, it comes from the Census Department, a lot of this. And by the way, you, you should go to the website because um, a lot of the things that are coming up in terms of, well, do people really live on a, full, on a minimum wage job? Are they just kids? Where, where do these numbers come from? You can find them at the, the Hunger Free America website. But what it comes down to is a lot of people answering basic questions like how often during this month did you have trouble uh, um, um, uh, putting food on the table? Or how often uh, in the next and last month did, did, you, did you have, have – um, did, did, did well, one of your children go to bed hungry or that type of thing? So these statistics are, are – you know, basically this is what social scientists – Spend their time doing and looking at. I mean, I mean, there's one one way to go. And I appreciate your calling, Billy. One way to look at this is to say, ah, it's not really people that are working that hard. They don't need it. Ah, there aren't that many people that are hungry. Ah, this is all baloney. Another way to look at it is say, listen, 
these are these are things that we learn about and we say, huh, that's interesting. Let's see how we solve the problem. Or maybe we decide that we don't like the data. We go out and take a look and find it. But one of the things that we can try to do here when we try to come to the middle is at least realize that there are problems that need to get solved. And together, we can have the ideas to solve them. We're back at the top of the hour with Left versus Right. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you all have an amazing Thanksgiving weekend. Girl, throw my love away.